there's so much out there that we do that is way more extreme than just taking away the potato chips from the register, right? And interestingly, this University of Southampton study that looked at attitudes towards this ban of high sugar, salt and fat foods by the checkouts showed that there was a lot of support for it, actually. So it's definitely time. I'd love to see lots of different kinds of companies being really supported and being able to do that for people. And also, importantly, to allow healthier foods to become less expensive. I think we need to tip the balance where these healthier, fresher foods are much easier for people to actually buy and afford. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Wilmington, North Carolina, Mountain View, California, and West Yorkshire, England. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 28 of season 6, number 424 overall. Here's a question for you. How many extra calories are you getting from those got you type of junk foods at the checkout line? I mean, you go there and you're checking out and you are literally surrounded when you are at the grocery store. And now the question is arising. Should these high calorie impulse environments be banned? Well, right now, there is a push underway to permanently outlaw these junk food aisles at registers and grocery stores in the UK. And shockingly enough, the ban at the checkouts, the ban of these high fat, high salt, high sugar treats has a ton of support, including some support from the food companies themselves. Amazing. So today we are going to be chatting with Dr. Gemma Newman about what effect this might have on your health. Fewer impulse indulgences. Because if you figure one trip to the grocery store per week, that's 52 per year. And each time if you give in to those cravings, those impulses, say you get a candy bar, well, that is 52 candy bars over the course of the year. And that can add up. We're also going to be getting tips today and some tricks for dealing with these cravings when all you see are these bags of chips and all of that candy. How in the heck do you even begin to walk away? Also today, great questions from the doctor's mailbag and the exam roomies who were able to join us live, plus their advice for crushing cravings and walking away from temptation. And can you believe it? The time is almost here. The exam room live in LA on March 30th. VIP tickets still remain for you to join myself, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Christy Funk, Dr. Columbus Batiste, Samantha Harris from Dancing with the Stars, Tony Okamoto from Plant Based on a Budget, and Harley Quinn Smith, actress and musician. Phenomenal, phenomenal plant-based human being. All of us will be there. And the question is, will you? 
Join us March 30th at the Ebell in Los Angeles. VIP tickets remain that include dinner, meet and greet opportunities, as well as priority seating for the show. General admission tickets available as well. Just visit pcrm.org events or click the link right now in the episode notes. So is it time? Is it time to get extreme, extreme enough to ban junk food? Have we reached that breaking point with our health? Well, the debate is on right now with Dr. Gemma Newman on the exam room. Dr. Newman, thank you so much for being here. Hi. Let's start by going back to what it was we were talking about just a second ago, where if you go to the store once a week and you get a candy bar every time at the checkout line, that's 52 different times you're going to indulge every single year. And that to me seems like a lot. Yes, Chuck, you know, you make such a good point. It's it's often about these cumulative effects that we don't necessarily think about. Um, and you can kind of see that, you know, you say a candy bar or maybe one donut here or there. And then as you've rightly pointed out, if it's right by the checkout, you might have that as part of your routine. It becomes very comforting. It just becomes a thing you do, especially with kids. I don't know um, all the parents out there that there's that real pester power, isn't there? When the kids are at the <laughs> checkout and they're like, I really want to have that chocolate. And then you end up giving in because they go on and on about it. So it definitely makes a huge difference. I think not having those things so easily accessible and what I find fascinating is that there has been a lot of research on subconscious food decisions by uh, Imperial University they're able to establish that we actually consciously make around about 15 different choices around foods daily but subconsciously we can make over 200 choices around foods and I suppose the point for that is that they're not really choices that we're aware of. They're just part of our food environment and many other factors. So this is one thing that I think can be hugely impactful. And I'm actually quite excited about it. Yeah, you know, it's funny you use the term pester power. And that was uh, something that uh, UK government health minister Neil O'Brien said in a press release that was sent to me. Um, I love the way, and I talked a little bit about this on the show last week, the way that he phrased this, I just thought was marvelous. He said, restrictions on the placement of unhealthy foods stop shops from using children and pester power from hassling adults into buying these things, but it also reduces the children's calorie consumption, driving down obesity, and could save the National Health Service over four billion pounds every single year. That is a huge savings, and that to me speaks to the true cost of obesity. Absolutely. And you know, it is important. We've got a national health service here, which is paid for by our taxes. And, you know, I think at the moment, I think obesity costs around six billion a year, but that's set to increase to nearly 10 billion a year by 2050. And so we do have to do something about it on a government level. And what I find really interesting is that this is a fantastic idea. The ban actually came into force in October last year. Although I would say anecdotally, I've been to the shops and I have not seen some some shops haven't, haven't been doing this. So I think that there are exemptions and loopholes in place. But what's really topical literally has just happened over the last few days is that the food SAR that uh, that was sort of um, employed by the government to actually tackle obesity. Um, his name was um, Henry. What was his name? I'm going to find my notes here. Henry Dimbleby. He's actually the co-founder of a food chain in the UK called Leon. And. He resigned just a few days ago because 
all of the things that he was suggesting, the government was just kind of kicking down the road or waiting to kind of um, implement. He proposed loads of different things, not just this particular ban. He proposed, what else? Let's have a look. He proposed um, more free school meals, um, an expansion of that program. He proposed a salt tax. He proposed a sugar tax. He actually proposed that GPs could prescribe fruits and vegetables to their patients, which I absolutely loved. Um, and there were two other bans that were actually agreed. So all of those um, proposals, I don't think, were authorised. But the ones that the government agreed to, including this food um, ban by the uh, checkouts and um, in the supermarkets, was the ban on pre 9pm junk food ads on the television and also trying to ban buy one, get one free deals on ultra processed foods uh, so that you know people don't tend to over buy and over consume ultra processed foods. But sadly, both of those proposals have actually been delayed by the government. And this food czar got so fed up that he resigned. And he actually said that he felt that the government was going backwards on some of the promises that they've been making. So I think this is so topical here in the UK. Um, and it speaks volumes that the man who's been in this post for five years, desperately trying to make changes in order to help us to you know, have less obesity, has finally kind of given up um, and thrown in the towel. For those of you who are watching live with us right now on YouTube and on Facebook, go ahead. Like, let's go ahead and put your comments out there as well. Put them in the comments or in the chat. I want to know whether you think this proposed junk food ban is too extreme. I'll tell you what really kind of makes me think here is that the idea of banning advertising for cigarettes a while ago would seem very extreme. I mean, you had doctors on TV back in the day saying how great these particular cigarettes were. And it was well up until the 80s and 90s, like seeing a cigarette ad anywhere was no big deal. And now here we are, and I'm not sure if you saw this one, but just yesterday it came out that it is projected that by the year 2035, according to the World Obesity Federation, more than half of the entire world will be either overweight or obese. And so that to me says that while it may seem extreme to ban something like advertising cakes and cookies and donuts and candy bars, if more than half of the world is going to be facing serious health consequences as a result of their food choices, then perhaps this extreme measure is something that is worth entertaining. Yeah, I actually really do agree with you, Chuck. And Along those lines, I, I read um, a piece by Andy um, Haldane, who was a former chief executive of the Bank of England. And in November, he said that the worsening health of the British people is holding back economic growth for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. And that really hit me that, you know, these things may seem extreme, um, but actually I think the situation that we face in terms of our economy and overall health and how that's going to impact our health service is, um, is really important. And also to speak to the fact that I think that there is also a lot of um, fat shaming in, in our culture, which I think is absolutely awful because the truth of the matter is if most of us are going to be overweight or obese in the future, unless something changes, then clearly it's not just willpower. It's, it's actually our food environment. Our genetics hasn't changed that much. Our food environment has. And I think that it's important to actually take these steps in a way that doesn't blame the individual. 
Yeah, I think at this point, it is kind of asinine to blame the individual who's struggling with their weight, label them as lazy or the fact that they're choosing to be this way. Believe you me, when I was well over 400 pounds, I was not choosing consciously to be over 400 pounds. I wanted desperately to be anything other than that. And yet a lot of people said, well, look, man, it's it's strictly based upon the choices that you make. Partly true. However, people need to truly understand the the draw that these foods can have on the brain. I mean, you want to talk about severe cravings, Dr. Newman, I was able to quit smoking way easier than I was able to quit eating junk food. It wasn't even a close battle whatsoever. I had to go to extreme measures to curb my obesity problem. So again, we're talking about doing something as extreme as banning these types of foods just in the checkout line, just in yeah. that area. I mean, like, is that really all that extreme when then you have people who are looking for uh, like thousand dollar injections to lose weight, weight loss surgery, right? Is something that I, I went through and it was no picnic. And believe me, that's not the magical solution either. There's so much out there that we do that is way more extreme than just taking away the potato chips from the register, right? Yeah, it actually is a really kind of low hanging fruit, right? If you could use that, that sort of pun, because it's something that is very straightforward. And interestingly, this University of Southampton study that looked at, at attitudes towards this ban of um, high sugar, salt and fat foods by the checkouts showed that there was a lot of support for it, actually, not just um, in the public, but also within industry. So it's definitely time. I'm really glad it's come into force here in the UK. And I would love to see that expanded. I'd love to see small businesses supported in that. I think, you know, clearly there are still certain loopholes in place and conditions. And I'd love to see, you know, lots of different kinds of companies being really supported and being able to do that for people. And also, importantly, to allow healthier foods to become less expensive. I think we need to tip the balance where you know, these healthier, fresher foods are much easier for people to actually buy and afford. Are foods subsidized uh, over in the UK as they are here in the States? We have certain subsidies on um, agriculture. And I believe, I think we are subsidized for the meat, but not the dairy industry at the moment. Uh, we don't have subsidies for um, fresh fruits and vegetables that I'm aware of, which is really sad. And this is where I think we really need to change things. Absolutely. Let's uh, see what the exam rumors are saying right now in the chat room. Carolyn Bridge says, totally agree with the ban. Being a nurse, I see the horrible habits people have with these junk food addictions. Karen Price says, I'm absolutely for banning advertisements for junk food and especially during programming for children. And then each one teach one has a pretty interesting idea here. I think that a campaign, they say, I think that a campaign to label the negative effects plastered in bold print in front of the packages are a great alternative than banning them. So what would you say to that? A warning label, much like you would see on tobacco or alcohol, uh, just for, say, a bag of chips. I think that's a really great idea in a lot of ways, because um, we now know there's quite a lot of data coming out that ultra processed foods are associated with increased risk of cancer, for example. So like you'd have on a cigarette packet, you know, it's it's clear that a number of studies over a number of years show that also cigarettes can increase risk of cancer or so can ultra processed foods. Um, so it makes sense. 
Um, in the UK, we have a very clear food labelling system, which is a traffic light system, which goes red to amber to green. And if you have a red food, then it shows that it's high in saturated fat, which I think is actually really helpful. And it's just a very simple way, rather than having to expect the consumer to turn the package over and look at the different macronutrients um, in what they're buying, they can just actually clearly see, oh, this is a red, amber or green food. Um, it doesn't give it a you know, in terms of a sort of a good or a bad value, but it does allow you to plan what you're eating in, in a, a way that actually sustains your health probably a little bit more. It's, it's interesting. You know, the opinions really are kind of split all over the, the road here. However, it does seem that everybody wants to move in a healthier direction. It's just a matter of how we get there. Danielson says banning is not the answer. Education is key, especially in low income areas. Marsha, meanwhile, says, I think the freedom of choice is important, but we can also increase advertising of healthy foods, get doctors to get serious about food as medicine, and majorly increase the availability of healthy restaurants. So if we went with Marsha's approach, and we really did go with the education kind of idea here, and Danielson saying much the same thing, if we really tried to educate and school people up as we do here on the exam room, what do you think the net effect would be if we were able to do that on a really large scale? I think that it's important to educate, um, but it's only one tool of many. Um, as I mentioned before, we make so many unconscious food choices and, you know, I think it's actually more to do with being able to help our environments to be environments to be more conducive to healthy living. Um, so if we look at town planning, if we look at um, government incentives, if we look at industry, um, we have to make it easier for people on a low income to be able to buy foods that are healthier for them. So I don't think a solo parent who's on the red line trying to use a food bank um, to supplement the things that they buy for their children is going to be unaware that fruit and vegetables are good for their children. But there are so many other things that actually play into that decision. So, for example, um, what the child um, will eat, whether there's any kind of food sensitivities, if they've spent all their budget on a meal that they've managed to cook, uh, and then the whole family rejects it, then it's wasted food. And then they can't actually get to the shops because they can't afford uh, a car. So they end up having to get a bus and then they use it, They have to carry all their food home, you know, in big bags. And then so they've only they've really got to kind of calculate or how much am I going to be able to use? And then they, they kind of have to go past various fast food um, dispensing places before they even get to a shop with anything fresh. Like there's just, you know, it, it's like a lot of things are stacked against that person. And I think if we can make it easier for that person to help them and their family make a healthy choice, that's got to be a good thing, um, as well as education. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about kids uh, there as well. I mean, well, look, when we were talking a second ago about these obesity projections for 2035, I mean, this is verbatim from a article that was in the Washington Post. It states that the steepest increase is among uh, ages 5 to 19 with the predicted obesity rate among boys doubling from 10 to 20 percent and more than doubling among girls from 8 to 18 percent. And then you have uh, someone in the chat right now, B. Lyles. It's like, well, look, you know, now let's also say, well, what actually is healthy? Because B. Lyles is concerned that options like granola and health bars may actually be 
junk food kind of in disguise. How can somebody even tell whether or not an option is healthy for their kids? Yeah, that's such a great point. And you can see so many things with what you call like a health halo, like they'll, they'll say that it's low fat, and then it'll actually be filled with sugar, for example. Um, or they'll say that it's low sugar, and then they use that um, as a replacement for higher saturated fat. And so I think a basic principle would be to, um, first of all, and try to buy things, whole foods as much as you can. So if you wanted to have a lovely big fruit bowl for the family, that's great because you know that fruit is already prepackaged. You know, you've got that banana skin. Um, it's really easy to sort of have that as the as the snack. You can make your own gran um, granola at home, which you know is going to be lower in sugar if you have the uh, resources to do that. Um, you can make your own trail mix. You know, you can get sort of dried fruits, dried uh, sort of nuts and seeds, and then you could help sort of get your kids involved to make their own trail mix as a lovely snack. Uh, you could prioritize things like uh, dips and things like, um, you know, cucumbers or celery or carrot sticks for the kids, cherry tomatoes, along with things like hummus, um, baba ganoush, which is an aubergine dip, you know, there's, and there's things that you could put in their pat lunches as well like that. I think sometimes... You know, it is hard to, to know what's best, especially, you know, if you're a busy parent, you just want to be able to um, give your child nutrition that, that they need whilst also making sure that they're actually going to eat the food. Um, so maybe trying to involve them as much as you can. That's another great thing to do. Um, and I know that this doesn't tell you everything about uh, about food, but you tend to notice that the more ingredients there are in it, then it's likely that that's more processed. Um, so just be aware that with uh, things with a very long shelf life. So clearly things like oats or rice, you can leave in the cupboard for a long time and that's going to be fine. But other types of foods with a very long shelf life, like shop bought cakes, uh, shop bought biscuits, for example, these are examples of what you call ultra processed foods, which tend um, to then carry that increased health risk. So I guess people are are kind of wondering right now if if they haven't been watching the exam room or done a lot of research on their own. They're like, well, why is it that we freaking love these foods so much? What is it about the sugar? What is it about the salt? What is it about the fat that just kind of hijacks the brain and makes us crave these things like crazy? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we as a species, we've we've come from uh, real nutrition, nutritional scarcity, haven't we? Um, and, you know, we're survivors. So we're here on this planet right now, having come from many generations of people that have basically aimed to get nutrition wherever they can. And if something was higher in certainly higher in sugar or higher in saturated fat, and then you knew it was going to sustain you for longer. Uh, and now, of course, we have food scientists that work around the clock to make foods as hyper palatable as possible uh, in order to seduce our taste buds into wanting more because we have that instinct then to gravitate towards foods that will give us more calories because you know that's basically how I believe we evolved. You know, we, we needed these foods in order to survive in the past, but now we're in a state of... Um, I suppose, caloric abundance, if nothing else. Um, I think some people do struggle to get hold of fresh food ingredients, uh, which is really sad. Uh, but we have got plenty of hyper palatable foods all around us. Uh, and it's just so easy to just grab it. And we know that it's going to um, basically set, set off all of those uh, um, dopamine receptors in our brains and leave us wanting more.
Oh, man. When I give my live talks, one of my favorite slides that I put up on the screen is the side-by-side -side comparison of somebody using cocaine and somebody eating essentially a slice of cake that's got a lot of fat and a lot of sugar in it. And you see the pleasure centers in the brain light up nearly identically. It's amazing. And I wish more people understood that. And it kind of makes me wonder if putting something like that uh, as part of the warning label may get people to realize like, hey, wait a minute, this is why I like it so much. But also going back before we open up the doctor's mailbag to the warning label talk, again, we have a lot of split decisions on here. Bean Burrito, though, is very much an optimist. And they say, well, believe it or not, you know, the public demanded labels for GMOs and we got those. So is it so crazy to think that with something like this, we could demand that a warning label be slapped on the chips, slapped on the ring dings, the ho-hos, the yoo-hoo drinks, all of that stuff. And we could still <laughs> get that, right? I mean, all, and is it any coincidence that all of these foods have really fun and enticing names too, right? Yeah, you sound like you're speaking a foreign language. I've never heard of ring dings, yaha, yoo-hoos, whatever. <laughs> Welcome to America, my friend. Yeah, ring dings, ho hos, yoohoo is a chocolate drink here. Yeah, we got it. Twinkies. I mean, we got it all here. Yeah, all of the fun names. We've yeah. got we, we've got Monster Munch. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, you know, I mean, but but then you have somebody like Surrender, who was saying, "Well, the warning label does not stop people from smoking," and that is true. I honestly, Doc, and maybe you agree to this as well. I don't think that it's plausible warning label or not that 100% of us will stop eating 100% of this food. I don't think that it's plausible. But what you have seen is a dramatic decrease in the rate of smokers in this country. And I would assume worldwide as a direct result of the marketing campaigns, the warning labels, everything that that has been put into really educating us as a society about the dangers of smoking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I can speak certainly for the UK in saying that we definitely have far less smokers here than we used to. Interestingly, young children now are actually getting into vaping more, which is a whole other issue. Um, because again, the companies that sell vapes are using bright colors, interesting, sweet flavors to try to entice uh, young people. And I think that if we go back to the food um, situation, one of the um, proposed things that, that the food czar wanted to do was actually ban pre 9pm advertising for junk foods. And I think that that is really important because, you know, we have to stop exposing our kids to all of these messages subconsciously. And I'll go back to the point I made before. So many of the choices that we think we have aren't really our choices to make. And if we're surrounded by these messages, then we're far more likely to want to pick up those, um, those bars of food that we know that are actually not as nourishing for us. All right. So let's go ahead then and give some advice that we can put into practice today. Right. So here in the States, it is a junk food bonanza. There is no ban. There is no talk of a ban. Everybody everywhere sees junk food every single place they go. When you are constantly bombarded with this stuff, though, how can you possibly walk away without picking up the candy bar, the chips, the whatever, make a healthier decision, no matter how hard or horrible that craving can be. Give us some advice on how we can walk away when it's staring you smack dab in the face. And maybe, maybe you've even had a really rough day and nothing would soothe the soul quite like a Snickers. <laughs> uh, I know. I think 
I think one of the things is to be aware. So even conversations like this, you know, often we'll make subconscious decisions. We will pick up something that we fancy without really thinking twice about it, without realizing that doing that as a habit is going to run us into problems. So first step is awareness, number one. I think the second thing is to really help yourself to reduce your exposures if you can. So one of the things that makes it a lot easier not to eat ultra processed foods or junk foods is to simply not surround yourself with them. So if you only go to the shop once a week, um, then at least that's better than having to go every day and seeing all of the same things. Um, Online shopping has become a lot more popular here in the UK, especially since uh, the pandemic, which means that if you are really disciplined and you don't use all the pop-ups that the um, supermarkets use to try and entice you to buy more things you can actually stick to not only your budget but also the things that you had in mind to buy don't go shopping when you're hungry that's another great tip make sure that you've had a nice lunch or a good dinner before you go to the shops to buy your food because if you're hungry you're actually more likely to buy things that are more calorically dense and less nutritionally dense, interestingly. Um, And I think it's also important to be kind to yourself, but you have to do that in a really conscious way. So if you've been struggling with certain types of foods or drinks that you want to kind of cut out, remind yourself, what is your why? Why would you like to make these changes? What kind of health benefits are you hoping to see? And daily reminders of that are actually sometimes really helpful because... It means that, you know, every now and then you can enjoy that food if you want to. But in my experience, certainly the less that you have them, the less that you really crave them. It can take a little while, but I've really noticed that to be true for myself and for my patients. No question about it. The taste buds change, uh, as our friend Dr. Will Bolsowitz explains, as the microbiome changes, so too does... so to do the cravings that you have. And suddenly, if you do reintroduce the foods that you used to enjoy, you may find that they are way too salty for your taste now. They are way too sweet for your taste now, and you no longer crave them. And then you naturally gravitate toward those healthier foods. But here's the interesting point, though. Um, number one, I, I just want to say an apology to Tofu Tuesday, who says, if I hear someone mention junk food, I want it hungry or not. The addiction is real. Even smelling McDonald's fries makes me want them. And I haven't had McDonald's for years and years. Well, first of all, Tofu, you are a brave soul for hanging out in the chat room today with the other roomies, <laughs> given the fact that we're talking about this. So, wow. Uh, I hope that we're, we're <laughs> you're able to hang in there. I mean, that that is rough. And it's crazy, though, like I so identify with what Tofu was saying there in that I haven't had uh, fast food in 13 and a half years now. And still, if I'm watching a game or a race and an advert for McDonald's or Taco Bell or Pizza Hut comes on from time to time, I'll be like, dang on, that looks really good right now. Same thing if I'm driving past one on my way home or or out to the store or whatever the case may be. Like every once in a while out of the blue moon, I'll be getting a craving for that. And it's mind blowing to me how we still, after all this time, knowing the consequences would still think, yeah, I might entertain that right now. Is that so Mm -hmm. crazy? Is it so crazy, though? No, it's not crazy at all. Um, There are so many things that actually drive our cravings. And can I just say how impressive it is that you've not had any junk food for 13 years? I mean, oh, wow, that is unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) So, wow. Yeah, no, I think it's completely natural. And you've got, 
these reminders and memories as well of things that you've enjoyed um, and the tastes and flavors that you've um, maybe had in childhood or with special memories with friends and family. So it's completely natural. And I think one of the things that I would say to that is that you should keep in mind is that when you get these thoughts popping into your head, they're like a you who rather than a must do, right? You can just be aware, okay? You can notice it but it doesn't mean that you actually have to do it. Uh, you look at you picking up on the American drink terms. Okay. <laughs> oh man. But um, you don't have to do. <laughs> no, but you don't have to. I like it. Put it down. <laughs> um, Mrs. Irises. I allow myself a little bit of bad snacks because I don't want to lose weight. Now, this is an interesting thing. So if somebody has lost all the weight that they want to lose, um, they're concerned about maybe losing too much. What are some uh, healthier options so that they don't have to turn to the Yoo-Hoo or the Ringdings or the Twinkies or the Ho-Hos or any one of the above? Yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting that they've used uh, the word bad foods because I, I actually try not to think of these foods as bad, actually. I, I think that if we label it too much in our own minds, then it can almost become a real battle. I think it's something that if you can imagine yourself taking or leaving it, that's fine there are always healthier choices. And if you are feeling as though you want to improve your overall health, again, look at your why, what is it that you're hoping to do? And if you're not wanting to lose weight, but you're just wanting to maintain health and you're wanting to maintain calories, then one of the things that I would always suggest for people is to look at um, homemade smoothies because sometimes with the ingredients of a smoothie, you can actually get about a thousand calories in a smoothie and you can have that either for breakfast or for lunch or sometimes for dinner, but you could also have it as a snack in between meals if you're finding that you're actually losing more weight than you want to. Um, and other things like slightly more calorie dense, nutritional dense um, snacks like nuts and seeds and dried fruits. If you find that you're losing weight that you don't want to lose or that you really want to maintain what you've got, then you can also increase those. And Perhaps also consider increasing an awareness of where you're getting your plant proteins from. Make sure that you're having a good source of plant proteins with every meal. Again, it's just um, a good way of ensuring that you've got um, a healthy, stable kind of macronutrient balance. So you remember how earlier we were talking about these uh, supposedly healthy snacks really not being all that healthy at all? Wilhelmina has a question. This is one of the prepackaged snacks that are kind of popping up here and there in the States. I've seen them quite a lot. Uh, are the snacks like roasted broccoli? And this has been roasted in oil and salt. They also have cauliflower in the same vein. Are those actually healthy? Or again, is this kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing? I think when you look at the health of a food, you always have to look at it uh, in comparison to what else you would be eating otherwise. So if you're going to be having, I don't know, let's say McDonald's French fries, and instead you have a packet of um, broccoli that has been maybe baked. I haven't seen any deep fried broccoli in, in England, but I don't know, it probably exists there. Um, <laughs> then it, it might be a healthier choice. But then again, of course, it's not going to be as healthy as having steamed broccoli with maybe a tahini dressing. So I always like to think of it in terms of what you'd otherwise have eaten. You know what I've been doing with the broccoli recently? Steamed broccoli on top of brown rice and a mixture of black pinto and kidney beans and then just hot sauce. I mean, as basic as it gets, but holy Moses, is that good taste and stuff right there. And that by the way, good. 
Are you a hot sauce person? Are you? Do, do <laughs> well, you enjoy the fire? Yeah, a little bit. Not some. Yeah, a little bit. I, I right. can I can cope with the fire. <laughs> all right, when you when you come over for ICNM this summer, all right, we'll we'll get you some good taste in American oh. hot sauce. Let me take that back with you. All right. Um, Tofu Tuesday wants us to know that she's doing okay with the junk food talk. She's uh, eating a bowl of miso noodle soup with tofu. Shocker, Ooh. tofu with tofu. Uh, okay, so they're doing just fine. No need <laughs> to lose good. any sleep. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, sounds really nice. Interesting question from Joe. When it comes to health and weight and the snacks, should we be more concerned with the fat content or the caloric content? I think it's important, again, to go back to comparing what you were doing with what you're doing now. So big studies on nutrition show us that when you're replacing saturated fat in the diet with monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, um, so you can think of things like nuts and seeds and avocados, and yes, even olive oil and certain other vegetable oils in comparison to saturated fat-rich foods like animal products and junk foods, you're going to see a clear health benefit. Um, and so as long as you're prioritizing those kinds of fats, I don't think you need to worry so much about caloric content, but it really does depend on if you have weight loss goals in mind. If you do, then you need to think about the amount of energy you're getting for the amount of satiety, right? If you're eating something that is giving you a lot of energy, but not really making you feel full, then that's going to be really hard because you're going to get hungry more quickly. So what's great is when you have a more fiber rich diet, which I'm sure You've talked about so many times on the exam room. If you have lots more fiber, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, lentils, chickpeas, tofu, um, you find that actually you're not going to necessarily be so hungry because your stomach is more full of that lovely fiber-rich food. And you are able to then wait till the next meal before eating something else. And then that's going to help you with your weight loss goals because you've got more nutrition um, for less calories. Going back to the uh, roasted broccoli, uh, Spock Rogers in the chat was like, ah, broccoli, good talk. We cook our broccoli in the air fryer. So Spock, uh, so do I. Um, I would love to know what your recipe is. Do you sprinkle a little nooch on that? Do you do any other spices when you put it in the air fryer? Like, let's get some details and we'll share that on the show as well. Um can I just say, I'm loving this chat. You know, I, it took me a while to figure out how to see it, but wow, you've got so many amazing people on here. What a community. I'm telling the roomies are the best. I mean, welcome <laughs> to the show. I mean, the, the exam room, oh, I so love good. these guys. We really have built one of the most wholesome communities I feel on the internet. Like it's, it's so cool to be here every week. I love um, it. Question from Liz. I think that we've blown poor Liz's mind today. She's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you guys really telling me that a candy bar can cause cancer? So if somebody says that to you in those terms, what would you say? Yeah, I think we have to be aware of the whole of your sort of lifestyle and diet. So if you have the odd candy bar, you don't need to freak out that you're going to get cancer. OK, I think that's really important to say. Um, but when we look at large populations of people and what they tend to eat, there are some clear associations between ultra processed foods and increased cancer risk. And even reducing the ultra processed food consumption in the diet by about 10% can reduce overall cancer risk by about 10%. So there's actually a really clear relationship there. Um, I don't think it means that you have to completely get scared and uh, avoid all of these foods. Um, Maybe you'll have specific weight loss and health goals in mind and you'll want to do that. And of course, 
that's great for your health. But I'm also really aware that um, when it comes to disordered eating, that's a, a really big issue to feel that you have to exclude so many different kinds of things from your life, especially if they're things that you enjoy from time to time. So you have to find the right balance that works for you. Um, and I think, again, the basis of that really comes from awareness, awareness of the things that you're enjoying, how often you're enjoying them and awareness of what your health goals are, as well as your goals for a happy um, life. You know, there may be certain things that you do with family and friends that you don't want to have to give up and you're going to need to work around that but you have to find a plan that really suits you and you know what that's kind of a, a really good transition to a question that was sent in by halcyon and i've been sitting on this one since the last time you were on the show back in january this was a comment that was left the last time you were here for the exam room all-star series and this is what halcyon wrote i said i've been vegetarian for 29 years and vegan for the last seven I'm trying to make the switch to a whole food plant-based diet, but I find it extremely hard. My two hungry teenage sons and husband have a big appetite, and I find myself spending endless hours in the kitchen, which makes me miserable. I would love it if you guys could talk about this and maybe about how I might be able to find some shortcuts and a happy medium here so that we can be happy and healthy and I don't have to lose my sanity. Oh, <laughs> what a sweet comment. I think that that is so understandable. You know, it sounds like uh, she's cooking food for everybody and maybe having to cook different meals for everybody. Um, that's the impression I'm getting anyway from the comment. And I mean, my personal opinion is that uh, what the nutrition research shows us is that the more plants, the better. Um, and whatever that looks like for you and your family, I personally enjoy uh, a vegan lifestyle. Um, I would call myself an ethical vegan and I aim to eat whole foods plant based most of the time. I would say that most people find that a happy medium for them is around 80% whole food plant-based, maybe 20% um, other things that they like to eat. And I think you just have to find a balance that works for you. It's like you say, you don't want to make yourself absolutely miserable. And if you don't have any very specific health or environmental or ethical goals in mind, then you have to do what works for you and your lifestyle. And it sounds as though you've been vegan for many years. You were vegetarian for like nearly three decades before that. You know what you like and you know what you want in terms of um your own food preferences, but just aim to encourage your whole family to eat generally more plants and you really can't go wrong. And hopefully you'll find the right balance that allows you all to be a little bit happier as well. You want to talk about being a little bit happier is making sure that things are firing on all cylinders between significant others. We have a question from Steve. We can tread delicately as it were, but I do think that since we're all adults here, at least I think, we can answer this question. Steve is wondering whether or not it is true, in fact, based off of what it is we're talking about today and some previous episodes, is it possible that junk food can cause erectile dysfunction in men? What say you, Doc? Um, we do have evidence that the blood vessels that supply the blood to the penis are affected by the things that we eat just as much as all the other blood vessels in our body. And in fact, maybe even more so because they're actually generally much smaller. So the little, um, 
vessels that supply blood to the penis to allow it to enlarge, they are just as affected as, as the ones perhaps in your heart. And so we do know that increased saturated fat in the diet, which includes most junk foods, um, does have an impact on the flexibility and the suppleness of our blood vessels. And so you can imagine what happens, you know, when you're trying to um, get an erection, you're, you're going to maybe have a bit more of a difficulty if you've had, you know, steak and, and chips and fries and eggs than if you were to have something like, I don't know, um, three bean chili and rice, you know, I think there'll definitely be a potential impact depending on the quality and the flexibility and the suppleness of those blood vessels to begin with. That's right. So let that be a lesson, my friends. A red apple a day may in fact keep the blue pill away. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Gemma. Gemma is coming. Not Gemma, but Gemma is coming in. Says, love, love, love broccoli and cauliflower roasted with my homemade hot sauce with black and pinto beans. Very satisfying. I'm happy to know I'm not the only one. And secondly, Gemma, I would love to know what your homemade hot sauce recipe is. That sounds absolutely incredible. I'm on board with your plan. I love, love, love what you are bringing to the table today. Um, let's. This see. is making my mouth water. I mean, it's getting close to dinner time here in England, and I'm just thinking, what am I going to eat? This is going to. I definitely have to have either beans or tofu. I'm, <laughs> I'm not so not so keen on the hot sauce though. <laughs> it's a, look. I mean, we'll introduce you small. We have something called the Scoville scale. I don't know if that's an international thing, but here it like will tell you how hot something is. We'll start you something on the lower end, and then gradually work your way up. Look, I'm telling you it's okay. And there are different kinds of hot sauce. You have some that just bring the pain and then some that have a lot of flavor with them. And if you gravitate toward the ones that have a lot of flavor with them, it really can brighten up whatever else is on your plate. Okay. Okay. You. You're don't convincing me, Chuck. <laughs> don't rule it out, doc. It's good. And I I'm won't, sure I won't rule it out. There's got to be some studies on the health benefits of hot sauce as well. I promise you that. Um, a couple of more random ones as we wrap things up. This has been a fun episode. Uh, Catherine, what, in your opinion, would be the healthiest plant milk for us to try? Uh, well, again, it depends. So we talked earlier about hyperpalatable foods. And one of the things that the food industry does is to um, add emulsifiers to our foods to help them to be... Um, easier for us to enjoy uh, and there's therefore quite a lot of emulsifiers in some of the plant milks that you can buy for most people that's not going to be too much of an issue but for some um, it may especially if you have something like an inflammatory bowel disease um, like Crohn's disease for example um, or ulcerative colitis you need to look at the emulsifier content of certain plant milks um, some people like to make them at home that's a really nice option. If you make them at home, they're not going to be fortified with additional vitamins. So when you have a family, young children, I think it's really helpful to buy a plant milk that is already fortified with things like calcium, um, B12, iodine, uh, or iodine, as you say, in the US. And again, I don't know what all the brands do over there. But I know here in the UK, there are several um, shops, supermarkets and brands that regularly and routinely supplement their plant milks with things like iodine um, and calcium and vitamin B12, which I think is a really great step forward because um, as, as you may know, cow's milk is automatically supplemented with iodine, for example. Um, and so we want to be able to offer those same opportunities for people that enjoy plant milks. When it comes to overall um, health, I think that a 
protein-rich plant milk is one of my preferences, especially for growing children. You want to try and emulate the protein content of cow's milk where you can. So uh, soy milk is a good choice for children or people hoping to optimize their protein content. Uh, Also, pea milk um, is another great choice for that. For the environment, you look at all of the research around which is the most environmentally friendly choice of plant milk, then probably oat milk uh, cinches it because it has the least impact on um, uh, emissions as well as water use. Um, But ultimately, I think it's whichever one you like the taste of most. Yeah, I like that. Uh, what, what, What is in the Newman house right now? What do you guys have in the old fridge there? Well, I've got two growing boys, so I will always go for the soy milk personally. Mm, not not worried about uh let's bust some stereotypes here not worried about the boys getting um you know breasts let's just put it out there Boy, <laughs> boobs, man boobs. no i'm not worried about that at all we love those phytoestrogens you know what's amazing is that in fact i don't think we should call them that anymore i think we should just call them selective estrogen receptor modulators because they are great for men boys women everyone all right, go ahead and say that one again and say it real slow because for the majority of us, what you just said is a mouthful. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so soybeans contain phytoestrogens, P H Y T O, phytoestrogens. And the reason that people think that they might give you man boobs is because of these amazing substances. But what these substances can do is actually help to improve your bone strength without having a detrimental impact on um, areas of the body that are more sensitive to estrogen hormones, such as the womb and your breasts. So it really does give you um, loads of health benefits without the downsides. And in fact, when you consume soy-rich foods throughout childhood, it can reduce your long-term cancer risk uh, for men and for women, uh, but especially when it comes to breast cancer um, development later on in life. So Yeah, I think soybeans are amazing. They've got all the essential amino acids and they've got these amazing compounds called phytoestrogens. And what I said to Chuck was that we should really call them SERMs instead. S-E-R-M, SERMs. And SERMs stand for Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulators. There it is. CIRM. See, now that is something that I can remember. My simple brain can process CIRM. The whole other, you know, stuff that you got to know Latin to get out there, that's just not happening. <laughs> CIRMs. CIRMs, my friend. Hashtag it. Make it so. Uh, final, que- <laughs> final question. Here we go. Going back to kind of what it was we were talking about at the beginning of the show and how difficult a lot of these high fat foods can be to kick. This is one that a lot of people kind of struggle with, myself included. It's tough to have it in the house without just grabbing a spoon and going to town with the whole jar. Trillo, Trill Trippolo, as a matter of fact, at 1245, I would like to lose weight and kick a peanut butter addiction. So when it comes to something like peanut butter, which you could say is kind of on the fence as to whether or not it's unhealthy, depending on how it's manufactured, how would you advise a patient to kind of cut down or eliminate peanut butter from their diet? Mm, it depends on the person. And you're absolutely right. Peanut butter can be a fantastic addition, especially if you are looking to maintain your calories um, or increase them. But as you know, it is also it is very energy dense. And so you do need to be mindful of how much you're eating, what the salt content is, too. So if you have a high blood pressure and you go for a really salty version, then, you know, you're going to find yourself maybe um, having issues there, too. So 
I think if it's something that you really love, you maybe try and go for a more whole foods version of that peanut butter. So you could go for one without added salt. You could go for one um, that was perhaps a bit more chunky rather than smooth. Um, and you could have it, you know, maybe with whole grain toast rather than maybe spooning it out of the jar. Um, or if your personality suits elimination more, then maybe just stop buying it for a while and then see how your taste buds cope. And then perhaps you can reintroduce it at a later time. All right, there you go. If we did not get to your question today, have no fear. We will do our best to introduce that at a later time as well. We will save it for an upcoming episode. And uh, before we wrap up, a couple of things that I, I want to go over with you. Before we make a big announcement about a show that's actually premiering tomorrow, um, a really amazing comment came in from an exam roomie this week that I wanted to share with everybody. Um, because today we're talking about uh, the impact that junk food can have and the even bigger impact that walking away from it can have in a lot of cases. And here's somebody that's really been doing a masterful job of that and seeing such enormous success. This Dr. Newman is an exam roomie by the name of Michelle who sent this in and I want to share her ultra success with you. She writes, my cholesterol was sky high, 391 total, 282 LDL, that's your bad cholesterol. She said, my whole family has super high cholesterol and does not think it matters. She says, I had an incident when I was 61 that could have been a mild heart attack. And I have been binge watching these videos ever since and decided to go vegan. No salt, no oil, no sugar. I used a quarter. I used to use a quarter to a half of cup in my coffee every single day, but no longer use any. And after just seven weeks, she says her total cholesterol has fallen to 207 and that her LDL is now at 118 from a starting point of 282. That is remarkable that that happened in just seven weeks. As a doctor, are you surprised to see such dramatic improvements in less than two months? Well, Chuck, it's true to say that I used to be surprised. I I was surprised the first time I learned about the power of a whole foods plant-based approach. But now hearing these incredible stories time and again, not only from my patients, but from stories like these shared on the exam room podcast, I'm not surprised anymore because, you know, I've really seen the power of plants um, and lifestyle changes. It can make such a big difference. And I also speak from personal experience because, you know, I used to run marathons. I used to have a lot of leg pain. I used to have a high cholesterol in my 20s. I have a family history of heart disease. And even though I was doing everything that I thought was healthy before, you know, eating things like chicken salads and all of that kind of stuff, uh, I still had those risk factors for heart disease until I embraced a fully plant-based diet. So I can speak from both personal experience, I can speak from researching the literature, and now I can be truly inspired by stories like this one. So well done. That is an incredible, incredible story. And uh, j just for a little background, Hazel was like, wow, that's really cool. What What is normal cholesterol for those of us who don't know? Well, it depends because my 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 readings are slightly different. So in the UK, we do millimoles per liter. Um, and we would generally say that people who are diabetic would need to be four or less and people without diabetes less than five. But I don't actually know what the cutoffs are in the U US. Sorry, I'd have to look that up. 
Quite all right. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to consult uh, Dr. Google here for the U.S. numbers. I should know that off the top of my head, but um, <laughs> I'm not the doctor here. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> yeah, you, it's, all right. it's, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. That's your excuse. Look, uh, if you have an amazing story like Michelle, please let us know. Put that in the comments or in the chat. Or, or better yet, hop over to Apple Podcast or Spotify. Subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee there as well. Leave a five-star rating and in the review box, tell us your story. We call that a five-star health success. And we may read that back here on the show as well, just like we did with Michelle. You can be the inspiration for somebody else, the catalyst for their change to walk into this healthier life that they have always dreamed of. It is amazing how far one story can go and that story can be yours. So go ahead, leave that in the comment or in the chat or hop over to Apple or Spotify, subscribe to the show, leave that five-star rating and tell us your story in the review. That would be so, so, so very cool. And I'm yeah. super proud of Michelle. Like that is just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Yeah, Michelle's done so well. And also, I've just quickly Googled it. I've got um, the Cleveland Clinic here, and it says that normal total cholesterol is below 200 milligrams per deciliter, and LDL should be below 100. Um, so there we go. That's what it should be. There you go. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I was going to do that uh, as soon as we start talking about this, which is the big announcement that uh, you and I, uh, we're, we're kind of a thing now here. Uh, don't let yeah. your mind run away, people. Uh, but we are, in <laughs> fact, a thing uh, because beginning tomorrow, premiering tomorrow, a brand new show. You may want to call it a spinoff of the exam room, but it's really kind of a novel concept where we really take everything that we've been talking about health-wise, put it together for everybody around the world and make one healthy world. And that is the name of the new show that we are premiering tomorrow. One healthy world. It's going to be on YouTube and on Facebook. And Dr. Newman, I can think of no better partner in healthy crime to be riding into this new era of health with than you. Thank you, Chuck. And I can say the same for you. I have absolutely loved working on this with you. And it's been hard to contain my excitement, but contain it, I've had to because it hasn't come out until when? Tomorrow, right? It's the That's first right. episode. Very excited for you guys because we've got some incredible guests. Um, we've got some really, really great stories. We've got some amazing science to share. And yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a labor of love and it's been really, really special. I've absolutely loved it. Yeah. And these are going to be like quick hitting episodes. We're going to condense a lot into about a 20 to 30 minute span. We've got like six, seven segments on there with a whole bunch of different guests on there. Um, really a fun and unique format where you're going to really not just raise your health IQ, but really just blast it off to the stratosphere. Really cool. So we're going to start with, I believe, the weight loss episode, uh, which will be tomorrow on the show. So really kind of continuing the conversation that we had today um, and broadening the scope of the discussion. So I'm really looking forward to that. So set a reminder for March 23rd, YouTube and Facebook, One Healthy World. Cannot wait for that. And uh, Dr. Newman, I mean, this has just been a real treat for today, for tomorrow, for all the episodes still to come. You are one of my absolute favorites to work with. So thank you so very much for your time. Once again, my friend. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I can't wait to uh, share it with everybody tomorrow. I hope you will enjoy it as much as we enjoy making it. Let's keep the conversation going for a minute here. Did you know, here's a fun one. Did you know that in parts of Mexico, it is illegal to sell junk food and soda to children? 
literally you have to be 18 years old in order to buy candy or Coke the same way you would a pack of cigarettes. Now, this practice began a few years ago at the beginning of the pandemic as a way to curb skyrocketing obesity rates among kids. This became clear that they wanted to do that after obesity became a major risk factor. It became clear that obesity was a major risk factor for severe cases of COVID-19. Now, when they came out and they did this, some leading health officials in the Mexican government went so far as to call soda, quote, bottled poison. I mean, can you imagine a government official or someone from the FDA calling Pepsi poisonous? I mean, that does seem like a stretch. It really does. But then you just look to our neighbors to the south in Mexico or what's happening over in the UK where the push to outlaw junk food in checkout lines is very much a real thing, plus a crackdown on advertisements of junk food to kids. Oh, and in Mexico as well, those warning labels that Dr. Newman and I were talking about on junk food, well, Mexico has those. Literally, packages of food are required to disclose whether that or a soda even has excess sugar or calories or sodium or fat. And the country of Chile, they have something similar as well. So for example, if you go there and you wanna buy a box of breakfast cereal, just make something up here like super frosted frosted flakes, frosted four times for your sugary pleasure. Well, here's the thing. If you go there and you buy the four times frosted frosted flakes, you will also see on the big blue box a black warning label telling you that it has way more than the recommended amount of sugar or calories. And since those warning labels became law, sales of junk food and sugary drinks have declined significantly. One study showing that the effect that these warning labels have has been far greater than the tax on sodas that was enacted years earlier. And yeah, there are parts of this country here in the States that do have a soda tax. But maybe that's not enough. Maybe the warning labels are the way to go. That's what we're finding in other parts of the world. And one more thing to keep in mind about the junk food ban as well, something else to consider. In case you were wondering, we were talking about this, 51% of the world's population projected to be overweight by the year 2035. Well, those numbers come from the World Obesity Atlas. And so that 51% would be a little over 4 billion adults who are overweight in the world. And the number of people with obesity, that would be 24% or about one out of every four adults worldwide then in 2035. That is almost 2 billion people. 2 billion people who will be obese by the year 2035. And you better believe that this is not just an adult problem. If you've spent any time listening to the exam room, you know doggone good and well 
that from the day that you are born, I mean, the obesity thing can be a real issue. For children here, children between the ages of five and 19, one in five boys, which is about 208 million and 18% of girls or 175 million will be obese by the year 2035. And those rates are stair-stepping up between now and then. You look back to 2020, just 10% of boys in 2020 were obese then. Far cry from what it's going to be. 14% in 2025, 17% in 2030, and then eventually 20% in 2035. So you've got that doubling there over 15 years. And for girls under the age of 19, for girls, it's 8%. In the year 2020, 10% then in 2025, 14% in 2030, and then finally 18% in 2035. Huge jump. And if you want to drill down into the numbers for adults, here you go. 23% of men will be obese in 2035. 23% of adult men. That's 690 million people. 27% of women as well. That's 842 million. And again, if you want to look at the trends, look at the patterns. For men, 14% in 2020, 16% in 2025, 19% in 2030, and 23% in 2035. Big jumps every five years. For women, 18 in 2020, 21 in 25, 24 in 30, and then finally 27% in 2035. Clearly and undeniably, we are headed in the wrong direction here. And again, that begs the question. Is an outright ban on these ultra-processed unhealthy foods the answer? To many, many, many people, it can seem extreme. But you should have seen some of the comments in the chat during the live show. Comments that we did not get an opportunity to read. I mean, people are up in arms about this idea. While others are very much in favor of it. So where do you weigh in? What are your thoughts? I would love to know. I would absolutely love to know that. Because the way I see it, the only thing that is as extreme as an outright ban on junk food is the toll that it is taking on our health. Life expectancies are growing shorter as our appetites are growing larger. And our health is deteriorating. So, is this a solution worth entertaining? The ban? A lot of people say yes. What say you? Let's keep the conversation going. Hit me up with your thoughts. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Chuck Carroll, WLC. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more.
That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. Coming up on the next episode of The Exam Room, Dr. Matthew Nagra will be back talking about animal protein versus plant protein. How does the body absorb them individually? How can you maximize the protein that is found in plants? And really, are we just making way too big of a deal about this whole protein thing? He's got the lowdown, the skinny, everything you need to know about protein and plants on the next episode. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Gemma Newman for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.